Let's open our Bibles to Genesis 37 and also Genesis 41. This is a case where you start at the back and see the ending before you see the beginning. Because the first one of our references, just hold your place in 37, but the first one of our references is Genesis 41, and actually we'll talk about verse uh, 45, but we'll read the background for it before. Genesis chapter 41. Now, I want you to notice as we read that Pharaoh, of course, had a dream, and the dream was one. He had two dreams, by the way, and they both made up one particular message. And Joseph was sent for, and we'll have to just mention that much of it before we get to the teaching of that particular part of the chapter. Uh, He was sent for, and he interpreted the dream for uh, Pharaoh. But let's begin reading with verse 37. And the thing was good after Joseph had interpreted the dream. It says, The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now he recognized the Spirit of God in Joseph. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath shewed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all the people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand, and put it upon Joseph's hand, and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. Let's stop there just for a moment, because verse 45 is our first point of uh, a type. So what do we have so far? If you remember in studying before, uh, at some time I'm sure you read about the dream of Pharaoh, and how that he dreamed about the seven uh, fat kind of cattle, and how that uh, there appeared also seven lean cattle, and the lean ones ate up the fat ones, and then they saw another dream the same night, all the same dream, how there were seven ears of corn that were real full and, and plush, and then after that he saw seven thin ears, and Joseph interpreted that dream, and he says, this is the meaning of that dream to Pharaoh, after he was sent, sent for <clears throat> and that will be a part of our lessons later on, but he interpreted that dream, and he said, uh, There's going to be seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. But he says there's going to be seven lean years, lean years of famine. And the good years will not be remembered for the fact that these seven lean years and this famine will just uh, destroy what was had in the seven uh, good years of plenty. And so Joseph interpreted the dream and he said that we should, uh, what Pharaoh should do, that he should lay up the corn and lay up the food in the seven years of plenty, so that he would have it stored up for the seven years of famine. And so we just read where Pharaoh was looking for a man to oversee this, and he chose Joseph to do it. And Joseph, of course, uh, had this plan. That's what he, God gave him the plan is what to do. And so Pharaoh said, Joseph, you're the only one, that, you're the one that I can depend upon to do this, to lay up the corn and, and lay up the food in the seven good years, and then it'll be provision for the seven bad years. And then we come to our first point. We just read that where he uh, put him, put a ring upon his hand that was a sign 
uh, signet of full authority. He made him ruler, and Joseph's authority came from Pharaoh's decree, and Joseph's authority was absolute. But then in verse 45, this is the first one of our types. And as I say, you could find types in all of the things that we've just read. But I want you to notice this. In verse 45, this is number one, if you want to mark them in the margin of your Bible. <clears throat> it says, <clears throat> And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnaphaniah, and he gave him to wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. And Joseph went, over all, went out over all the land of Egypt. Verse 46, And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. By the way, that's another type. The same as Jesus starting his public ministry. Uh, stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And he did what he was commanded to do. In the seven plentish years, they brought forth by handfuls. He gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt. And he laid up food in the cities, food of the field, which was round about every city. So what we see here... I want you to notice, first of all, verse 45 will be the first one of these types of Jesus. He called his name, and this is the meaning of his name, Zephnathaniah. Zephnathaniah. Now then, the meaning of his name, we know that Joseph had a natural name. But then it seems that this would indicate, you know, the word really means revealer of secrets. But it puts him in a place, special place, as pointed out. So, the meaning of his name, Joseph and Zephnathaniah, shows us that he had two names. And in this, he's typical of Jesus. Jesus had a human name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Then he was Christ, the anointed one. He was the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus had two names. And we know that there's many names. There are many names attributed to him, especially in the prophecy, where it says in Isaiah, I believe it's 9, verse 7, where it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So he has multiple names, but at least these two show his humanity and his deity. He is Jesus, that's the human name, and he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. And we'll give you, we're going to study this as we go along and try to give you some meaningful thoughts about the double name of Jesus. So in this type, by Joseph having his natural name, and we consider the other one to be given to him after, because of his divine wisdom uh, by Pharaoh. And uh, we consider that to be typical of the fact that God sent the promised Messiah into the world. And uh, there are a lot of scriptures that I want to give you concerning this one type. His double name. Now, first of all, we know that, that he's called the Son of Man in many of the Gospels. But he's also called the Son of God, isn't he? He's not only the Son of Man, but he's the Son of God. Now, if you want a reference, I'll give you some references as we go along. And, and we're not going to rush through these. I'm not going to uh, give my son all 65 of them this one night like he thought I was going to. But if we get one or two, we'll go ahead with that. But uh, if you will look at Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says that he was made of, listen carefully, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Shows his human uh, descent. Then verse 4 says he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now think of that for a moment. Verse 3 you have his humanity. and verse 4 you have his deity. We know that uh, Peter said when Jesus asked him who he was in chapter 16 of Matthew. 
And he talked about, some might say he was Elijah, or in others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, or they said that. Some said he was John the Baptist. But then in verse 15, he saith unto them, Whom say ye? But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there he's revealed as the Son of God. And we know that there are so many scriptures to verify the, the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we'll find it spoken of of the human nature even before he was born. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. It says, well, let's read verse um, 30. And the angel said unto her, that's unto Mary, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, verse 31, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. So there you have the humanity. In Matthew chapter 1 it says, For he shall save his people from their sins, called Jesus. But look here. Let's go on down and read in Luke 1 verse 32. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. So you see there. Not only was he named Jesus, but he's going to be great, and he's going to be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So he's going to be the ruler and the eternal ruler of the house of David. So we see by those references that we have the twofold, the meaning of his name is twofold. And Joseph is a perfect type of that antitype who is Jesus Christ. Now then, let me say something else. Joseph's name itself means adding. It means adding. We know that there was a great subtractor in Adam, the first Adam. He subtracted us to naught, didn't he? By his sin... He brought the whole human race into uh, under the curse and the judgment of God and the sufferings and the sorrows that humanity has to suffer today. And as the federal head of the race, he plunged, in, plunged all of us into despair and into subtraction from what God... God had given him a far above that. God had given Adam uh, every blessing that he could imagine. And yet, he forfeited it all. So he's the great subtractor. And Jesus is the great adder. Well, now, how does Jesus add? Look in John chapter 12, verse 24, if you will. John 12 and verse 24. Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He was that corn of wheat that died. And through his death, there was much fruit that came forth. In other words, this fruit, too, is fruit for eternity. These are the souls and the salvation of all of us who are sinners saved by grace. We're part of that fruit that he has brought forth. By what? His death. You know, I think I've mentioned before, in 45 years, it'd be doubtful that I haven't mentioned it before, wouldn't it? That you could take a grain of wheat, some of you farm wheat, or any kind of grain, or barley, or some other kind, you could take a grain of wheat and lay it here upon this pulpit, where it's completely and perfectly dry, and no moisture would ever hit it. It would not be put into the ground or anything, and it might remain there for year after year unless some, somebody come knocked it off and fell in the ground, got sw- fell to the floor and got swept up and thrown in the trash or whatever. But it would remain there. It wouldn't rot. It'd just be there. You know, we have uh, granaries that store wheat, and it's okay if it's dry and kept dry. But, of course, when you put it in the earth and it gets the, uh, the moisture and then the, it, the, it, uh, it uh, dissolves or it... Uh, dies, and then first out of that, it has to be dead before it will start bringing forth a shoot and make make a, a green blade and come up and have wheat as a result. And that one grain of wheat 
If you'll notice, when you have a wheat harvest, every little stalk comes up. It comes up out there in the field, and there'll be a thing about as long as your finger. Some of them are long, and they'll have 20, 30, 40, 50 grains in one little uh, head of wheat. And then think of a sheaf of it. There can be hundreds. And sometimes the wheat crop can be as much as 12, 15, 20, 30 bushels an acre. And you have a lot of it. But the thing about it is, what we see is Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. The only way that it can bring forth fruit is, is through its death. And he says, it bring, but if it die, if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And Jesus is that one that died on the cross. And through his death, much fruit is brought forth. And not only just physical, not just physical, for it is not that especially, but it's eternal. It's the fruit of the salvation of souls that's brought forth by what? By the death of Christ. And so when we think about the meaning of the name, as we turn back to Genesis chapter 41, and that's, that's what we gave you the meaning of his name in the 41st chapter to show you the twofoldness of it and actually the meaning of Joseph's name that means adding. Now then, as I said, we took the last first. The last one of these happened to be, it won't be last in number, but we had to deal with that before we could go on. We had to show the person of Christ, the one we're studying about, before we turn back to chapter 37 and continue with our types. And by the way, we'll have many, many ones in chapter 37 of types. I think I have listed here at least 25 in chapter 37. And I, I'm not sure that I've got through with all those. But there are at least that many in chapter 37. Then we'll find more in chapter 39 and 40 and so on and so forth. But I want to, we, we want to study these now in order. So I've given you the first one, the meaning of his name. That's number one. So if you're over in chapter 41, mark that down as number one. If you just want to write a one by it, write a one by that verse in, in your Bible. See? So you'll know that's the first one. And then turn back to 37, and we'll get number two and three and four and five and a whole bunch more. But look at chapter 37 and verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought, forth, uh, brought unto his father their evil report. Their evil report. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this first verse is this. That by occupation... Joseph was a shepherd. This is number two. By occupation, Joseph was a shepherd. It says in 37 verse 2 that we just read. Well, what was Jesus? He said, I am the... John 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Listen. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So we can see the type very readily there that Joseph being a shepherd is a type of Christ who is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. And all through the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, he speaks of himself as a shepherd. And we could study that, but if we did, we'd take all of our time just showing you exposition of the fact that Jesus is a shepherd. We know that 
In verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. Verse 15, he says, uh, as the Father knoweth me, even so I know, know I the Father, and I'll lay down my life for the sheep, and which he did, didn't he? And he said in verse uh, 16, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. It's Christ's business to gather all of his sheep, all the believers of this world that are the sheep of his pasture, and bring them into one fold. And then he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. He says, When I lay it down, that's not the end of me. Because I'm going to take my life up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. He voluntarily and willingly and lovingly went to the cross. But he says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my Father. He not only had the power to lay down his life as a sacrifice, but he had the inherent power to raise it up again. The Bible tells us that's exactly what he did. Remember when he was put on the cross? Remember the thieves? The soldiers came by at a certain time of the evening to break the knees of the thieves to hasten their death, which they did. When they came to Jesus, they found that He was dead already. You know why? Because in those last hours of His life, He said all that He was going to say. The last word that He spoke, next to the last word, He says, It is finished or accomplished. And then the next word He says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He willingly and purposely and died by himself. The spear didn't put him to death. The nails didn't in his hands and feet didn't put him to death. The crown of thorns and the blood he lost didn't put him to death. He voluntarily, what? Laid down his life. And he says, I have power to what? Lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received from my Father. So, Jesus, you say, well, it would have caused his death. Well, that remains to be seen because he was the Son of God. Because he had power to lay it down, he had power to take it up again. And he spoke of that in the 10th of John. So, what we see is that the first thing that we see is that he was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep. You and I are the sheep of his pasture. He said in that 10th of John, and I have already turned from it, but he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And he said, My Father is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And when you look at that Scripture, you'll find that the word man is in italics. If you look at that passage of Scripture. John chapter 10, look at it, if you will. In verse uh, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any, neither shall any power, neither shall any one. Someone says, well, uh, no man can pluck us out of the Father's hands, but the devil can. No, the devil can't either. Jesus is stronger than the devil. And it really just says, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. That could include anything, anyone, any power. And it goes on to say, and you'll find that the same thing is true. He says, I, My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man, you have the word man again, see, is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. There are other words in italics, but that's not the point we want to make at this time. So we find that uh, 
You know, the italicized words, in case uh, I need to remind anyone, tell us that these words in the King James Version of the Bible were not in the original. That the writers put in a word here and there to try to, in some cases, clarify the meaning. In some cases, it may have taken away from the meaning. But they were honest enough to put the word in in italics to show you and I that they're not in the original manuscripts. And so, that's what we appreciate about them. And sometimes, it'd be better off if they didn't put the word in there. What if they'd have said, if uh, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand? That would have been more forceful to me than any man. Because that would mean anyone, any power, anything can separate us from, from Christ, who is our great shepherd. And so we turn back now to Genesis. Hold your place in Genesis 37. So we've talked about, first of all, that his occupation, number two, and you can write number two by verse two, Genesis 37, two, and you can write some more there, three and four if you want to. (laughs) We'll get some more right out of this one verse. Let's read Genesis 37, verse two again. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilphah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. This is the third thing that we find. His opposition to evil. Joseph opposed their evil report. He brought unto his father. Someone says, well, he was a tattletale. Uh, someone might accuse him of, of, for, uh, of not being true to his brethren. He was sent to inspect and to find out what was going on, and he just simply told the truth. I don't think anyone can blame him for his truthfulness. So what you see is his opposition to evil. How does that relate to Jesus? Let me give you a reference in any of these cases to show you in the New Testament. Look in John chapter 7, verse 37. No, John chapter 7, verse 7. 7, verse 7. Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Now look, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. He says, I'm just telling you what the world is. And that's why the world hates me. Because I testify of it that that the works thereof are evil. So this shows us that in the statement we made, that uh, his opposition to evil finds its counterpart in Christ. And these things about Joseph are typical of Christ. So he told the truth. Remember when he stood before Pilate? Thought of truth came up. Jesus said, I bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And you read in John chapter 17, if you would, where he says in verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify, that is, God's children, by the word of truth. So what do we find? His opposition to to evil. Now then, the next thing I want to point out, hold your place in Genesis 37, please. That was number 3. We gave you 1 over in chapter 41. Number 2 is in uh, 37, verse 2, and also 3 is found there. Now then, in uh, 37, verse, verse 3, we're going to find something else. Number 4 is found in verse 3. 
chapter 37, verse 3, and it's the fourth one of these things that we speak of as types of Christ. And what it is, it's His Father's love. His Father's love. Number four, put that by verse three. You have Genesis 37, verse three. Put number four beside that. I just put a little four and put a circle around it or something. However you want to mark it in your Bible. His Father's love. Let's think of that. It says, now Israel, that is uh, Jacob or Israel. Now he's going by his uh, spiritual name. Remember in verse one, and Jacob dwelt in the land. Now look, in verse three it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. In verse 3, you have number 4 to mark down. Be sure and mark these down. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Isn't Jesus the most beloved son? The Bible speaks of the son of his love. Over in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, you won't care to turn to it. Colossians chapter 1. Let's read verse 13. It says, Who hath delivered us, Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness, and translated, God has through Christ done this, and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. When it says dear Son here, it means the Son of His love. He has translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. In that verse of Scripture that we gave you. We find that His Father's love in the New Testament is pointed out in, in many ways. When He was baptized in uh, Matthew 3, verse 17, He says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember? When Jesus was baptized, came up straightway out of the water, there was a voice from heaven that said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit in the form of a dove lighted upon Him. So you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity there, when Jesus was baptized. And think of this. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later on in uh, Matthew 17, and I believe that's verse 5, verse 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen carefully, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when uh, Peter, James, and John went with Jesus upon the high mountain apart to pray, and the Bible says He was transfigured before them, and His face did shine as the sun, and His raiment was white as the light. And the Bible says there appeared with Him Moses and Elijah. In Luke's Gospel, I believe, chapter 9, you'll find that they spake with Him about His decease, that He should accomplish at Jerusalem. By the way, you have three passages. I believe it's uh, Matthew 17, where you have the transfiguration. And Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. John doesn't tell us about it. Luke's gospel tells us that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But anyway, in that experience of, on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have God saying again, after they saw no man say Jesus only, or about that time when they did see that, uh, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now what does he say? He says, hear ye him. He adds three words. Because by this time of the transfiguration, Jesus had proved himself to be whom he claimed to be when he was baptized, the Son of God. And he, later on, God said, 
Hear ye Him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He said, Hear Him. You know, sometimes we have to prove ourselves before we're worthy to be heard. And uh, certainly Jesus did. Not for any reason for the Father's sake, because the Father knows all things. And He sent Him, and He knew exactly who He was and what He was. But He had proven Himself to, to men upon this earth to be whom He claimed to be. And so in that transfiguration, the Father said, Hear ye Him. So He's the Beloved Son. He's the Son of His Father's love. Let me give you some more references. We already read uh, John chapter 10, verse 17, where He said, uh, Therefore doth my Father love me. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. He says, My Father loves me, because I'm going to lay down my life. But I'm going to take it again. We've already referred to that. So He was the Son of His Father's love. Let me give you another one. Philippians 2, verse 9. Most of us are familiar with this passage of Scripture. Remember, verse 8 says, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And verse 9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? So the Father has highly exalted His only begotten Son, the Son of His love. In our message this morning, we gave you five times in the New Testament where Jesus is called the only begotten Son of God. We gave you five times. I don't know if you were listening. Were you listening? Did you get them? First John, let me turn over there and I'll give them to you again. But he's called the only begotten Son of God in First John chapter 4 and verse, verse 9. It says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son. There you have the title. Only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Now, the other places you find is in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 14, and John chapter 1, verse 18. And then, John chapter 3, verse 16, and John chapter 3, verse 18. So, those are, that's four places in the Gospel of John. And then this one here, and these are the five times that you find that title in the New Testament where it actually says, His only begotten Son. Now then, back in our lesson, in the book of Genesis, chapter 37, we said that He is His Father's love, the Son of His Father's love. Now then, I want you to read verse 3 again. And you'll, by verse 3, you have Genesis 37, verse 3. Put a little five by this one because we have number five there as well. Number five goes there. We may have another one. Six goes there as well. But anyway, put five there for the meantime. Now look, verse three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. His relation, this is number five, his relation to his father's age, the son of his old age. 
we want to give you some scriptures concerning this. Now, that's the fifth one of the typical uh, meanings or things about Joseph that we find that represents Christ. Now, then, we know that the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, listen carefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, and so on. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do we see there? We see the Word pre-existent. I mean, self-existent. We see the Word was with God, coexistence, And the Word was God. Let me see if I got those things right. We have the three points, and I'm not sure that I gave them to you as I should have. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equality with God. So you have pre-existence, co-existent, and self-existent. I got them uh, backwards. Pre-existent, in the beginning was the Word. Co-existent, the Word was with God. And self-existent, the Word was God. Now, on down in John chapter 1, if you'll look at verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh, look at this, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word is spoken of in connection with Jesus. The Incarnation. And in connection with his pre-existence and his self-existence and his co-existence. So we're talking about, if you have Genesis 37 and verse, verse 3, you'll find that he was the son of his old age. Joseph was the son of his old age. And how does this represent Christ? We've already given you that passage of Scripture. Because he was in the beginning with God. It says all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. He was equal with the Father in creation. In fact, the Father attributes creation to the Son. Even though we know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all active. But the Father says, I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. I forget the exact verse, maybe verse 7. It says, But unto the Son he saith, the passage of Scripture, but unto the Son, He, that is God, saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And then, now look at the next verse. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So the Father said to the Son, In the beginning he laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. So you find that in Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> I may have given you the wrong verse, but it's somewhere along there. But anyway, let's go uh, on with this thought. His relation to the Father's age. You know, in Colossians 2 verse 9, it says, In Him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we find in John 17 verse 5, this is another one that's worthy of your looking at, John 17 verse 5. Jesus said, 
And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with the glory uh, with thine own with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Look at that, John seventeen verse five. We could read the whole passage and see some wonderful things, but look at that. He says, "And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was." So how is he? in relation to the Father's age. He was with the Father in the beginning. He was with the Father in glory before the world was. And he says, I want to be taken back to that glory that I had with thee before the world was. Because he says, I finished the work that thou gavest me to do. I finished the work, and now I want to be with you in glory. And by the way, that's a promise of our glory with him too. I believe it's verse 24. He says, Father, I will, in John 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I will that all those whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory. For Thou lovest Me before the foundation of the world. So He wants all of us to behold that same glory and to be glorified together with Him. And there are many passages in Romans chapter 8 that we could point out where He speaks of that heavenly glory. But we have to go ahead and conclude with our thought about his relation to his father's age. Look in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and we'll let this suffice, I believe. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The Bethlehem where Jesus was born and laid in the manger is prophesied here by Micah. And he speaks of a certain Bethlehem, this particular Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And he says, For out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been... Who is it? Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We know that we just quoted a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1 that he's going to be the ruler. It says he shall sit... Remember when we appointed you to Luke chapter 1? He shall sit upon the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. But now, Micah says that this particular one that's going to be born and laid in that manger, the last statement in verse 2, Micah 5 verse 2 says, "...whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting." The word everlasting means the days of eternity, or you might say infinity. If you have a marginal reference, the Greek says, or Hebrew I should, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew says, the days of eternity. It has to do with the days of eternity. That's how long Jesus has been going forth. That's how long He's been. That's how long He's been co-equal with the Father. So, back to our thought of his relation, Joseph's relation to his father's age, we're trying to point out Christ's relation to the heavenly father's age. Someone says, you know, I believe in the eternal father, but I don't believe in the eternal son. And we have different cults that teach that Jesus was a created person. But listen, there can be no eternal father without there being the eternal son. Just for instance, my family. I was a husband my wife, but when Darrell was born, 
or firstborn son, firstborn child, I became a father. So, I'm just as old, he's just as old as a son of me as I am a father to him. There's equality of me as I am a father to him. There's equality 